preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction the following message is brought to you by George Lawson Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Man, why don't you take your Bibles and uh, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're back in 1 Peter uh, this afternoon, and I'm not going to apologize that it's going to be a long service, so uh, just buckle in, okay? 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. As we've been uh, reminding you, the book of 1 Peter is written to a group of persecuted Christians uh, who Peter refers to as aliens and strangers back in chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, the Greek term there is uh, par epidemos. It's a, a word that means a, a sojourner, a traveler, somebody who resides in a strange land that doesn't belong to them. And that's what we are. We're, we're the world's true aliens. Uh, Jesus says in John 15 and verse 19 that you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We're not from around here. We're like uh, travelers on a temporary work visa, and we're far from home. In fact, you could say that the the Christians, the true Christians, are the furthest from home because you can't get any further than earth from heaven. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're only here for a limited time. But that doesn't mean that we don't have responsibilities while we're here. We can't just check out until the Lord chooses to call us home or come back. You know, we can't hang out on the rooftop and wait for the rapture to take place. 1 Peter 1.17 exhorts us to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. And why? Because our heavenly Father will judge our earthly conduct. We'll have to give an answer to him for how we've behaved while we were away from home. And I know it's one of the questions I always had for my kids, you know, how how did it go while you were away from home? I actually used to ask the people who watched them, you know, how did it go while they were away from home? And it was to their benefit that they came home with a good report. And in a similar way, it's our desire to be pleasing to the Lord so that when we come home that we can offer a good report of our time on earth. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 lets us know that we have as our ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. And if we keep the end in mind that one day I'll have to stand before my God and give an account to him, it helps us to put things into perspective. Beginning in chapter 2, Peter addresses for us the kinds of responsibilities that we have while we're living here as temporary residents. And the reality that Peter recognizes is that while we're here, we'll be faced with those who are disobedient to the word, those who oppose and malign us, those who intimidate us, even seek to to harm us because we're called to live lives of excellence before them. And we're to do what's right, to shut the the mouths of those who slander us, uh, to direct people to the Lord who saved us, and to honor the Father who will judge us according to our works in the end. And it puts everything in perspective when we think about it like that. And Peter informs us that we have the responsibility to an unbelieving government, you know, to, to those that, that have authority over us in the workplace and also in our homes and to the society around us. And in chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, uh, Peter addresses our responsibility in the workplace. Uh, actually, it goes all the way down to 25, but we'll just get to verse uh, 20 this week. So uh, why don't you follow with me as I read First Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 18 to 20. It says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of it. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word, the authority 
of the Scriptures, that the Scriptures speak to all of life authoritatively. My Father, that we can submit to your word and that we can find blessing by following and paying heed to your word. And Father, we thank you that your word brings life. And even as we heard this afternoon in the testimony of Danny Hicks, how you brought life to his soul, my Father, we're so grateful for the work that you've done in him and in the life of all the deacons, Lord. And just the, the wonderful testimonies that we've heard about your saving grace. Father, we give all glory and honor to you. Even as we sang just a bit earlier, my Father, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear our voice as we sing, as we proclaim, as we, we talk and speak of this great Savior. All glory goes to him. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. And so, Father, I pray that you would hear us today, uh, that you would grant me uh, your, 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 your help. Now, Father, as we, we desperately need you. Every time we come before this word, we need you. We desperately need you. And, Father, I pray for your help and that you would help me to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can tell a lot about the, the way a, a person feels about their work by the way they talk about it. You know, some people talk about their work in relationship to the time that they spend on the job. Often you'll hear the job called the nine to five or putting in my eight hours a day or my 40 hours a week. And if you add the prep time and the travel time, it really adds up to more than 40 hours a week for for most of us. And uh, the years before retirement uh, can feel more like serving the end of a jail sentence and uh, as you scratch the, the days off the calendar, you know, putting, putting in your time uh, can feel more like uh, doing time. Uh, some people talk about their work in relationship to the toil and uh, the effort they put in. You'll often hear uh, work spoken of as the daily grind. Uh, interestingly, I've, I've heard that that phrase originally uh, came from the image of grinding grain at the mill, but in the 1800s, uh, the, the phrase came to be used for the nature of work itself. You know, instead of, you know, the, the, the grain being ground down, it was the, the people who felt like they were being ground down. So it was the daily grind that I'm being ground by the work that I have to do. It's like the, the work is crushing me, wearing me out. And then there are those who talk about their work and the relationship of the, the, the tedious nature of it. They see their work as monotonous and, and meaningless. You know, they're getting nowhere fast. They expend all of their energy and they still feel like they're at the same place at the end of the day or at the end of the week. You know, you've got more uh, uh, bills than, than money at the end of the month. And uh, people call it the rat race. And the image that we have is of one of those, you know, gerbils or mice, you know, running around in that little ring, but they're, they're not getting anywhere. They're expending a lot of energy, but they're not going anywhere in the same spot. And unfortunately, Christians can come to think about their work in the same way, that it's, it's meaningless, it's pointless, I'm doing the same thing day in, day out. What's the use of what I'm doing? And we've become comfortable in speaking about the work that we do often as, as pointless. Uh, there's actually a, a paraphrase of uh, one missionary's testimony. Uh, listen to what he said. He says, prior to attending seminary, I was a businessman involved in the sale of drill presses, you know, a device that's used to, to screw holes into a piece of metal so that you could put a screw into it. And he says, these drill presses were, were used in sophisticated machine shops. And after a while, I began to reflect on my life and what I was doing. And I became gripped by the fact that my whole life was given to a business that put holes in metal. Holes that were later filled with screws. And I began to think about how meaningless my life was, giving to making holes in metal, which will someday be filled with screws. Not only did this occupation seem meaningless, but the thought one day dawned on me that one day, the whole earth is going to be destroyed in fire, as Second Peter uh, talks about. All the elements of the earth will melt as if, if, if it doesn't rust before then. So I gave up my occupation because, you know, what's the use? And I became a missionary. And there's nothing wrong with the desire to become a, a missionary. Uh, and we hear stories like that even without questioning the way that the people talk about it. But that missionary is also going to people to raise support for him to go on the mission field. And he's likely talking to people who work in a machine shop. And basically, he's saying that, you know, I became a missionary because what you're doing is useless, but uh, if you could support me as I'm going out to do something meaningful with my life. You know, there's, there's people that don't see the, the profit in what they do, you know, and then that missionary is going to get on a plane, and he better hope that those holes are filled with the right screws, and that somebody actually did the job that they were supposed to do in that machine shop. 
And then when he gets to the mission field, he might be talking to people who actually work in a machine shop. And how is he going to now talk to them to say that, no, what you're doing is meaningful and, and useful, but, you know, I'm you know, really doing what's, what's more meaningful, but, you know, I still want you to come to know the Lord. How does all that work? You know, the, the work that we do, and God has a, a much higher view of the work that we do. Now, we picked this up from the very first verse in the Bible that in the beginning God created, that's God working, God at work. On the seventh day, he rested from his creation, which lets us know that the whole week he was working. And it's not that God stopped working. In John chapter 5, when uh, Jesus healed a lame man and uh, the Pharisees rebuked him for working on the Sabbath day, he says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. I'm I'm not going to apologize for working. God is constantly at work. And if God stopped working right now, we would all instantly disintegrate. Do you really want God to take a vacation? You really want him to take a day off? You know, the Bible lets us know that if God took a day off, there would be nothing left when he came back, right? Man was also a worker. Not only is God a worker, man was a worker even before the fall. Some people think that work is a result of the fall, but that's not true. The the toil and thistles and thorns are the result of the fall, not the work. When God made man, he put him in the garden and gave him an occupation. He gave him a, a job. Before sin entered into the world, God gave man a job. He was to be the keeper and cultivator of the garden. And it was the dignity of men to have responsibility. And again, there's nothing wrong with a vacation, taking a leave of absence, you know, retiring. But when men, able-bodied men, are doing nothing for a prolonged period of time, that's not a good thing. And when you go into an area of the city and you see a bunch of able-bodied men sitting around with nothing to do, you've got a problem on your hands because they will find something to do, whether it's the right thing to do or not. Men were created to work, and if they don't work, they'll work at play. You know, work is a noble thing. It's the dignity of men to work. Work is elevated in Scripture as glorifying to God, and God never intended for six days of the week to be meaningless. Have you ever thought about that? You know, even in the, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about the, the Sabbath day and, you know, a day of rest and the sign of the Mosaic covenant. But have you ever thought about the other side of that command? That in uh, Exodus 35 and verse 2, it says, for six days work may be done. So there's six days that were given to, to work and one day that was set apart, you know, to, to rest. So if, if you're not working the rest of the week, what are you resting from? What, 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 what point does the Sabbath make if you're not actually working for the rest of the week? It's, it's pointless. The work that happened for the rest of the week made Sabbath meaningful because now I'm taking a break from what I've been doing all week. Not that I've been taking a break all week and now on a Sabbath day, I'm just gonna continue to take a break from what I've been doing all week. Actually, why don't you uh, flip, the week, uh, flip the week around if the, the rest of the week is meaningless, right? Why not make six days you know, for the Sabbath and one day for work if the, the one day is really, you know, for work is, is meaningless. You know, what's the, what's the point of making six days of meaninglessness? Actually, listen to this statistic. The average person spends anywhere from 40 to 75% of his life, the, the time that you're awake, in work or work-related task. That, let's say 60%, just to, just to kind of give it an average. 60% of your waking hours spent on the job. Listen to this, unless you're able to redeem that time for the Lord, you have wasted 60% of your life. (laughs) 60% of your life. You've basically said 60% of my life has nothing to do with the glory of God. God has a a much higher view of your life than that. Actually, in uh, Colossians 3.17, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Everything that we do, we're to do for the Lord. Actually, in a Colossians 3, 23 and 24, it says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So six days should be six days of, of worship. That's what God intends it to be, that, that your work would be worship to God. Romans 12, 1, you're to, to make your, your, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And 1 Peter gives us a way to see the, the work that we do with a view towards God, as God demands to be Lord over every area of of our lives. And um, I know that some of you have jobs where things aren't working out. <laughs> you know, in some cases, the, the best thing for you to do is maybe to find another job. But until and, and unless that happens, uh, there's a way that you can actually experience the favor of God in what you do. And the outline for today is fairly simple, but 
that takes care of what's in the text. Number one, there's a mandate for submission. Number two, a, a manner of submission. Number three, a, a meant to receive submission. And number four, the motivation for submission. So let's take a look at the, the mandate for submission in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Be submissive. That's the mandate. Be submissive. The identification of the, the slave, you know, servants, uh, we're, we're told here, the identification of the slave in the first century is really important to, to understand because it's more complicated uh, than we might think about it. Uh, normally, when we think about slavery, we're actually thinking about something that's much different than what the Bible describes as slavery. You know, what we often think about as slavery with the transatlantic slave trade is actually what the Bible calls kidnapping, stealing people. It was never lawful to take people from their homes, their lands, you know, to rob them and bring them to another country. That's kidnapping. Actually, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, kidnappers, all found in that same list of the, the, the murderers, the ungodly, the profane, men-stealers, kidnappers. Deuteronomy 24 verse 7 says, If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel, and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die. It was a, a crime punishable by death to take somebody by force and to make them your slave. So what Joseph's brothers did if you think back in Genesis, would have actually been a crime punishable by death according to the Mosaic law. Exodus 21, verse 16, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in possession, in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Whether you sold somebody into slavery or you bought somebody who was being sold into slavery, if that person was kidnapped, you received the penalty. It's punishable by death. So anybody that tries to use the Bible to justify the American or British slave trade is misapplying the text. That's straight up kidnapping. And nobody is telling their children, if you get kidnapped, simply submit and forget that you have parents. That's, that's not what happens. And that's not what Joseph should have done. He shouldn't have just forgotten that, you know, I actually belonged to somebody else. Kidnapping was just one form of slavery. And again, it was condemned by Scripture. But there were other forms of, of slavery. There was slavery because of war, because of uh, piracy, because of child abandonment, uh, being born to a mother who was a slave, uh, being condemned by the law courts. If you remember, that's what happened when uh, Judah uh, thought that Benjamin, uh, who's the brother of, of Joseph, stole the silver cup. If you remember that, uh, in Genesis chapter 44 and verse 16, uh, Judah, said, Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves. You know, to, to pay for our crime, we'll sell ourselves into slavery. You know, it was a way to pay for a crime. It was also a way to pay off a debt that you owed that you couldn't pay back. Over in uh, Genesis 47, again, if, uh, if you remember this, uh, when Egypt was experiencing a famine and Egypt was the only place that you could go to get grain because Joseph had stored it away, people came to Joseph you know, to, to buy food. And eventually when they gave everything that they had, Genesis 47 verse 19 says, why should we die before your eyes? Both we and our land, buy us and our land for food and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. They sold themselves as slaves because they didn't have anything else to pay with. So they, they paid with themselves. I'll give you myself in order to make payment. Even Jesus uses slavery in the same way over in Matthew 18 with the, uh, the parable of the unforgiving slave who owed a debt that he couldn't pay. You know, he, he was an unworthy servant. He couldn't pay back. So, you know, the master said, well, I'll sell you and your, your entire family into slavery. Like that's how I'm going to get, recoup some of my money back because you can't pay me what you owe me. But my point here is that we shouldn't think of slavery in the Bible as just one kind of, of slavery, slavery, the slavery that we often think of was actually condemned by Scripture. But the first century was, was saturated by slavery. Slavery was actually a, a basic element in ancient society. 
Slavery was so per- pervasive in, uh, in Rome that actually uh, there was a proposal by the Senate that uh, was going to make slaves have a distinctive dress, but they turned it down because they said, if we make slaves wear a dress that's different, then the slaves will know how many there really are. And they can actually overthrow us. We don't want the slaves to know how many they really are. So, so we have slavery that's just seen all over the scripture. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and uh, some people ask, you know, well, well could, a, could a Christian actually own a slave? Have you ever heard of the, the man by the name Philemon? Actually, there's a, a book written to Philemon who was a slave owner. Now, now, it's clear that Philemon wasn't a kidnapper because Paul would have had some other words for him. But basically, Onesimus was, was a person who probably owed Philemon a, a bunch of money that he couldn't pay back. And actually, Paul addresses this. He alludes to this in Philemon 1, 17 and 18, where he says, if you then regard me as a partner, speaking to Philemon, accept him as you would accept me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. If he has wronged you or if he owes you. You know, those were the conditions of slavery, that he had wronged Philemon or that he owed Philemon. And he says, if he's wronged you or he owes you, just charge it to to my account because that's why he was a slave. And our slavery, you know, that we think about often isn't that kind of, of slavery. And the employers that we have today are not slave owners. You might, you might feel like when you go to work, you know, that you're reporting to the slave owner, but, but that's, that's, not, that's not the case. They don't own you in the same way. You've agreed to pay, uh, to, to, to work for them voluntarily, and they agreed to, you know, pay you a certain amount you know, for your, your, uh, your, your task. So it's, it's not the same as slavery, but we can find some application, right? Because you have agreed voluntarily to submit to those who are in authority. And uh, that's the word here, hupotasso, you know, servants be submissive to your masters, hupotasso. Saw that word earlier in uh, verse 13, to, to fall in rank, to fall in line, to get in order. There's a certain manner in which submission uh, was to be given, uh, as well. So we have the, the mandate for submission. We also have the manner of submission. Look at verse 18 again. Servants, be submissive to your masters, but how? With all respect. With all respect. That, that word respect is the, the Greek word phobos. Actually, it's uh, where we get our English word phobia from. Fear. Not only does it say that we're to submit, we're to submit with fear. And the text actually says, with all fear, submit to those who are in authority. Submit to the, the masters. What does that mean? Am I supposed to be afraid of my boss, my supervisor? I mean, how does, how does this relate to what Peter just said earlier in verse 17, that we're to fear God? You know, isn't there a kind of fear that only God deserves? Why would I give that to a, to a boss? Why do I want to give that to an employer? You know, is there some kind of contradiction? Actually, we, we don't find a contradiction here. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3 just to show you this real quick. Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 22. Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 22. It says, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, listen to this, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And what Paul does here in uh, Colossians chapter 3 is he gives us seven ways to obey the masters who are over us. And I'll just go through it real quickly. We're to obey completely, verse 22, in all things obey. We're to obey faithfully, you know, not with external service. We're to obey sincerely with sincerity, of, of heart. Actually, that was uh, uh, our English word sincere comes from a, a Latin word that means without wax. You know, sometimes when they'd sell pottery and it had a crack in it, they'd fill it with wax and kind of sell it off. You know, but, uh, you know, if people were honest, you know, and they'd kind of toss away the, the, the pots that were cracked, they said, hey, we're, we're selling pots that are sincere without wax. You know, that's actually what the, what the word meant in, in Latin. But it's uh, to obey with sincerity, it's, it's, a, it's a, a heart that's, that's pure. You know, I'm, I'm not being deceit, deceitful in my service towards you. We're to obey reverently in verse 22, fearing the Lord. We're also to obey, uh, uh, we're to obey wholeheartedly. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, you know, from the heart, you know, as for the Lord rather than for men. So our, our service is really directed towards God. 
and we're obeying expectantly, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance and we're to obey fearfully. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. You know, so what the, the scripture lets us know is that even though there's a, a fear that's given to men, it's, it's really through them to God because you're really fearing the Lord in the way that you give service to those who are over you, who are authority over you. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that with, without partiality, but from who? It's from God, it's not from the men because God is the one who sees everything. Only God can see the heart, right? If you're obeying from the heart, you're really doing it to please God because man can't see the heart. God doesn't just look at the face when he renders judgment. God looks at the heart. So the, the real service was given to God. So how can an, a Christian give fear to an earthly master? It's because he understands that there's a master above him. And my fear is really directed towards God. Number three, number three. Not only is there a, a mandate for submission, a manner of submission, there are also the men to whom we give submission. Back in First uh, Peter chapter 2. Who are the men that we give submission to? Look at verse 18 again. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. But, but who? Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Not only to the good, but also to the unreasonable. It's easy to give submission to good and gentle masters. You know, we all wish that we could work for Boaz, you know, in the book of Ruth, you know, who, who greets his servants, you know, hey, may the, may the Lord be with you. And the servants respond back, and the Lord be with you. You know, it's just like this great relationship that he has. You know, at mealtime, if the way that he treated Ruth has anything to do with how he treated his slaves, we find out that Boaz was generous. He made sure that his workers were fed. He gave them sufficient breaks during the day. Over in uh, Ruth chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, to Ruth, come here that you may eat of the bread, dip your piece of the bread in the vinegar. So she sat, and listen to this, beside the reapers. Boaz had his whole crew sitting down, feeding everybody from his land. I mean, that's the kind of guy that Boaz was. Served her roasted grain she ate, was satisfied with some left over. I mean, everybody would like to work for Boaz. You know, he sits you down, take a long break. He's feeding you out from his own field. Doesn't even, you don't even have to pack a lunch when you work with Boaz. You know, Boaz will get your lunch for you. It's catered when you're working for Boaz. But unfortunately, we all don't work for Boaz. There, there's some of us who work for uh, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. It's true. <laughs> Let's us know that in uh, Genesis chapter 16 that she treated her maid harshly and she fled from her presence. Sarah was an unreasonable master. And what Abraham and Sarah asked of Hagar was not right. <laughs> Wasn't right. Abraham and Sarah were sinful for asking Hagar to bear the promised child. That was wrong. It was wrong. And Hagar was sinful for complying in this whole ordeal. Flip over to, to Genesis chapter 16 real quick. If you remember the story, Sarah was barren, thought the Lord would give her children through Hagar, her handmaid, and the child that was born to Abraham and Hagar was not by God's design. It wasn't the child of promise. This is all wrong. And Hagar would have been right to refuse but until Abraham dismissed her, she was still bound to serve Sarah. She wasn't bound to do what was wrong. She was still bound to serve. Look at Genesis chapter 16. This is interesting. Genesis chapter 16. This is after Hagar is treated harshly. She runs out into the wilderness. And in verse 7 of chapter 16, she's touched by an angel. Look at verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur, he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. That was a harsh master. She wasn't required to do what was wrong, but she was still required to submit to what was right. And her fleeing was the wrong thing to do. Flip back over to First Peter, what's my point? My point here is that we are commanded to submit to all kinds of men. 
even those who are unreasonable. Actually, the, the word that's used for unreasonable uh, back in First uh, Peter chapter 2, in verse 18, that word unreasonable is the word scolios. It's where we get our English word scoliosis from, which is an abnormal curvature of the spine, which can result from a disorder of the brain, a spinal cord, or a muscular system. It was used of a, a crooked piece of wood. When, you're, when your spine has scoliosis, it's, it's curved. When, when, when wood was uh, uh, crooked, you know, it was curved. You couldn't use it. It wasn't fit for normal use. A, a crooked piece of wood. Actually, uh, I'm not sure if you've paid attention, but uh, at Home Depot, two-by-fours are like two to three times as much as they used to be. And I'm, I'm in the middle of a basement project, which uh, I'm not too happy about because I'm paying two to three times the amount that I should have paid to get this project done. You know, with all, all, all these, uh, you, know, uh, you know, things that I need in order to, to make everything work. So I'm, you know, going out of Home Depot and I see this, you know, 70% off rack, you know, with the two by fours on there. It's like, man, I can get them 70% off. And I bring them home and I'm putting up my wall and all of a sudden my wall is going this way. And that way, you know, cross. I was like, what in the world is up with this wood? You know, there's a reason it's on the 70% off rack, right? You know, there's a reason that why carpenters get that two by four and they kind of look down the, the edge of it, you know, to make sure it's straight because you don't want to try to make a straight wall with a crooked two by four. And the same is true when it comes to those who are over you. You don't really want to try to, you know, do a straight job with a crooked boss. I've got this, this guy and he's a crook. He's crooked. He, he's twisted. He's bent. And some, some of us have those kinds of bosses, right? And at this point, I would apply Matthew chapter 5, verse 41. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them too. That was a reference to, to Roman soldiers who could legally press a citizen into service, make them carry his supplies for an entire mile. It was by law they could do that. But it was unreasonable. You know, here I am, I'm with my family, I'm having a good time, I'm on vacation, and then a soldier comes up with his sack on him. He says, hey, you, come over here. You know, you're, you're gonna carry this for a mile. It's like, like, what? But it's law, I gotta do it. So here I am, I'm doing something that's unreasonable. This is crooked, this is wrong. But what does the Lord say? I, I heard him last week, I was at that sermon. What did he say? He said, if a person forces you to go one mile, you go with them too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go the, the extra mile. Go the extra mile. It's inconvenient. It's unreasonable. I feel violated, but you know what? I'm going to go the extra mile. And if you ever wondered where that phrase came from, go the extra mile, this is where it comes from. Matthew chapter five, verse 41. And even when people are crooked, perverse, they ask you to do things that are unreasonable, as long as they're not asking you to sin, the principle of Matthew chapter five would apply. How, how can I go the, the extra mile? If I can do it in good conscience, if I, if I can honor the Lord in this, you know, let me do more than what I'm required to do. And finally, there's what I would imagine would be the most difficult out of all the requirements, because not only are we required to take on responsibility that doesn't belong to us, we're also exhorted to bear up under suffering that doesn't belong to us. And this all falls underneath the motivation for submission. Look at verses 19 and 20 back in 1 Peter 2. It says, For this finds favor... If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Suffering unjustly is not some kind of assurance that God's spirit of glory and grace will rest upon you just because you've suffered unjustly. There's many people who have suffered unjustly, right? Many people have suffered unjustly. You know, we talked about the transatlantic slave trade. That was suffering unjustly, unjust suffering. First century was filled, saturated by slavery, and all that slavery wasn't according to Scripture. It was suffering unjustly. And the Greeks would actually define slavery as uh, actually a freedom as having four characteristics, and all of these were robbed from the slave. In order to be a citizen, Greeks define freedom in this way. You had the right to represent yourself in legal matters. 
You had the right to the protection of your property. You had the right to work where you wanted to. And you had the right to go where you pleased. And if you were a slave, all of those freedoms were taken from you. You can't represent yourself. You know, your property belongs to me. I can take whatever I want. You don't get to work where you want. And you don't get to go where you want. All of those rights were were taken away. All these were denied to the slave. Aristotle actually defined slavery as uh, a slave as living property. That's what he considered a slave. So many slaves were considered nothing more than just, you know, like a bench, a tool, a screwdriver. Oh, and I got my slave over here as well. This is unjust suffering. But don't miss this. And this is, this, is, this is remarkable if you really pay attention to what's going on here. God actually says that those slaves do have rights. Think about it. Can I treat my screwdriver unjustly? No. Can I treat my hammer unjustly? No. If a slave is nothing more than a piece of property, how can I treat my slave unjustly? But God says, no, you have treated him unjustly because he has more rights than a piece of property. He's not just a piece of property. So even included here, God is elevating the person that Romans would call the slave and say, oh, he's nothing more than a piece of property. You know, I don't have to treat him justly because, you know, why do I need to treat my property justly? No, that is a person. You treat him justly because he is a person who's made in the image of God, not just a tool. So God clearly here says that even those that would be considered slaves, even for right reasons, are still considered image bearers. They have rights. And that's the way that God treated those who were considered slaves in the Old Testament. Slaves were to be treated as hired men. Leviticus 25 and verse 40, you can write these down, look them up later. Slaves were to be treated as hired men. All slaves were to be set free at the 50th year, which was what? The year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, every time it came around on the calendar, everybody goes free. Ali, Ali, oxen free. Everybody goes, right? Everybody can leave. 50th year, everybody's out. Leviticus 25, verse 10. There was also a time limit set on slavery. If a person became your slave, you could only hold that person for six years. And then you had to let him go according to Old Testament law, unless he agreed to stay with you longer. Six years, all you could hold him. If you injured a slave, even if, if you made him lose a tooth, you know, the loose tooth slave, you got to let him go. You got to let him go. I injured you. I'm sorry. I got to let you go. That's what the law said. Exodus 21 verse 27. And there was also a punishment for killing a slave. Exodus 21, verse 20. You had to pay the penalty. And Israel, in particular, was to know how to treat slaves. Why? Because they used to be slaves. Deuteronomy 15 and verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And in 1 Peter, back in 1 Peter chapter 2, God is clearly saying that these People are to be treated as people. They're not just property. They have rights. According to God, slaves had rights. And many people suffered unjustly. But what kind of suffering received a reward from God? And this is where we get back into 1 Peter chapter 2 again. What, what, what kind of suffering received a reward? What kind of suffering was actually celebrated by God? Three qualities of suffering that finds favor with God. Write it down. Number one, it's suffering with a conscience toward God. A conscience toward God. The word conscience literally means with knowledge or with perception. It's a suffering that's endured with the thought of God in mind. It's for his praise, for his honor, for his glory, for his name. I'm in obedience to him. So if I'm suffering, but I've got my mind on him, Lord, I'm I'm doing this, I'm gonna bear with this, but I'm doing this for you. (laughs) I'm doing this with you in mind. That kind of suffering is rewarded by God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you don't have a mind towards God, if you don't have faith towards God, suffering without faith is just suffering. You understand that? Suffering without faith is just suffering. It's suffering with the mind towards God, that my mind is on Him. You know, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus, right? I'm going to put my mind on Him. Number two, it's a suffering that is innocent. If you're suffering because you brought it upon yourself, don't bother saying like, oh, Lord, oh, Jesus, this is, this is for you. This one's for you, Lord. No, if, if you've got into trouble because you got yourself into trouble, 
Don't try to say now that you're suffering for Christ. 1 Peter 2.20 says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? I'm just going to bear under this, Lord. I'm going to bear under this judgment because I, I ran that, 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 speed, that, that, that stop sign. I'm just going to bear with the punishment because the, the cop is on my tail now. I'm just going to bear. I'm going to endure this, Lord. I've been stealing from my job for months, and they finally caught up with me. Oh, Lord, I'm going to bear with this slip that they're going to give me. I'm going to endure this slip. Oh, Lord, they're writing me up. You know, that's, that's, not, that's not for the Lord. 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16 says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Titus chapter 2, 9 and 10 says, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. That, that's a... That's a fancy word for stealing. You're pilfering. You're taking what does not belong to you. Keeping what belongs to another. Pilfering. But showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. There are some people who are suffering at work not because of a conscience toward God, but because they're lazy. And they're argumentative. And they're troublemakers. They're evildoers. They're pilfering from their employers. My uncle was uh, responsible for hiring and firing people at a job that uh, uh, downtown in D.C. He was uh, responsible for the maintenance. And uh, he actually hired a, a few profess, professing believers. And uh, these professing believers, you know, took their lunchtime to, to do a Bible study. And nothing's wrong with that. You know, I, I hope many of you might have a Bible study, you know, on your lunch break. You know, take, take your own time, have a Bible study. But they're still on the job, and if anything goes down on the job, they're supposed to address it. But these guys figured, you know, hey, we're doing our Bible study. There was an emergency in the building. You know, there was a leak in the building, and everybody else is called like, hey, we got to go and, and address this leak. You know, the, the, the people that we're working for are expecting us to come and address this. I, I know it's your lunch break, but we've got to go. And instead of these believers saying, oh, you know what, that's right. You know, I'm on the clock. You know, it's, it's, it's in the white space, you know. <laughs> You know, when you, when you sign up for a job, it's like, you know, uh, other responsibilities as necessary, right? So here, here they go. It's like, you know, emergency on the job. And instead of getting up to go, they sat and stayed. Because we doing our Bible study right now. We are in the Word. We're deep, deep, deep in the Word. We can't let this go. I, I'm, I'm so far into this. There's no way I can get up right now. No way. I'm just slain, slain by the Word, Lord. Can't get up. After they were fired, they tried to say that, oh, I was persecuted for Christ. It was for Christ's sake. That I, but just because I wanted to read my Bible. No, it was because you're stupid. Because you didn't want to do what you're supposed to do. Don't use that as an excuse. Being an evildoer, a busybody, troublesome meddler, lazy, argumentative, not doing what you're paid to do, pilfering, taking from the company what should belong to them. And now you want to say, oh, I'm, I'm being persecuted for Christ. No, you ain't. You are not being persecuted for Christ. You're being persecuted for your own stupidity. That's what it is. And if you're using your company time to set up a soapbox to do some, uh, you know, not open air preaching because you're inside, you know, it's like closed door preaching. I'm going to set up my soapbox right next to my cubicle and like, hey, hear ye, hear ye. Everybody, it's time to repent. You know, it's like... I know you're supposed to be working at your computers, but, but this, put this down. This is more important than what you're doing right now. If, if that's what you're doing on the job, you are wrong. You're wrong. You, you, you do that before the, the clock. You do it after the clock. You do it in between time. You don't spend company time to go and say, hey, I'm, I'm just going to go out for the Lord. I'm witnessing for the Lord. Now, if it comes up in normal conversation while you're working, that's fine. But I'm saying you don't take away from the company time to say, oh, I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm, on, I'm the Lord's man. I'm an employee of my king. You don't do that. It, it honors the king if you do your job, okay? That's what brings honor to the king. We're to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, right? And finally, suffering finds favor with God if it's patient, patient suffering. Look at verse, uh, there's a couple characteristics of uh, suffering kind of shows up this concept that's mentioned three times. Verse 19, bears up under sorrows. Verse 20, endure it with patience. 
Verse 20 again, endure it with patience. It's not only that we suffer with a a mind towards the Lord, that we're innocent in our suffering, but we also patiently endure our suffering. We're we're, we're not argumentative. We're not bucking under the sorrowing. To to bear up under sorrows pictures a a heavy weight that we get underneath and we hold it up. I'm I'm going to to bear up under this. And to, to endure it with patience means that I'm not going to seek to get away from this. I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm being afflicted right now, but I'm not going to seek to try to push this off. I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to get back at my employer. What does that look like? Instead of demanding your rights, seeking some kind of immediate restitution, or in the case of some slaves, they could actually transfer, and there's nothing sinful about removing yourself if you could. You know, 1 Corinthians 7.21 says, if you're able to become free, then do that. But in situations where you're unable to do that, what honors God is patient endurance. Not being argumentative, not demanding your rights, not making the company pay. They got plenty anyway. Not slacking off, not being lazy, not complaining about your conditions to the other employees, but patiently suffering even in justice. And maybe you're at that kind of position at work. You've been singled out because of your faith. You've been attacked simply because you're doing what you knew it was right. Your supervisor might have wanted you to bend the rules a little, but it's like, hey, I can't do that. I know that this is right. I'm going to do what's right. Maybe going the extra mile got you labeled a company man. People don't want to work with you because you're messing up the curve. I can definitely remember at times caving into to pressure just to get along with everybody else. But I also remember times when my conscience just wouldn't allow me to do it. I can't do that. I can't do that. And I remember one time being singled out sent to the office to have to explain myself why I wouldn't do what they were asking me to do. And then when I got sent back to the job because I was actually doing the right thing, they sent me up on the roof in the middle of winter and said, oh, we, we, we need you to take care of some stuff for us. It was basically a payback. Payback. Sometimes we suffer for, for doing the right thing, right? And I know this is Father's Day, and, and dads, this is for you because sometimes you suffer and nobody knows about it. Suffer on the, on the job. You have to deal with the, the pressures for trying to do the, do the right thing because you want to provide for your family. Not only are we required to take on responsibility that doesn't belong to us, but sometimes we have to take up suffering that doesn't belong to us. And that goes against everything in us. Why should I have to suffer for doing what's right? I'm doing the right thing. How, how could the scriptures call on me to take on suffering that's not mine? It's so unfair. How could God ask me to do this? To suffer for doing what's right. I mean, who does that? Who suffers for doing the right thing? There's at least one person we know took on suffering that he didn't deserve. Look at the end of the passage, 1 Peter 2, 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. That's unjust suffering. That's what Christ bore so that we could be saved. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And I can't wait to get into this passage next week with you. Why does this kind of attitude please God to suffer injustice? Because it looks like Jesus. Looks like Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect model for submission perfect model for submission. That's point number five. I didn't give it to you. We'll get to it next week, but you can write it down now. The model for submission, perfect model for submission is Jesus Christ, verses 21 to 25. Jesus is the model for taking on suffering that didn't belong to him. Philippians 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What suffering did Jesus deserve? 
None of it. None of it. It was all unjust suffering. Isaiah 53, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Christ took the suffering in our place. Who's the example? Who's the model for suffering unjustly? Jesus Christ is. And we'll look more at that example next week. But praise God that there was a substitute. Amen? Amen. Praise God that there was one who took on suffering who didn't deserve it. And we need to follow in his steps. Praise God. What a wonderful salvation. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, just come before you, Lord, once again. Our Father, we thank you. Uh, for this time to uh, look uh, to your word, and uh, we pray that you would use your, your word, Lord, to, to really challenge us, to help us to, to think differently, Lord, even about the, the things that we suffer, whether it's on the job, whether it's in society, whether it's in the home. Father, I pray that we would think through what our suffering looks like, and does it look like Christ? Do we have a, a mind that's stayed on, on you? Do we lift our eyes to the hills from where our help comes from? Do we look to you in our suffering? Is our suffering innocent? Is there something that's actually in us that we're calling down suffering on ourselves? And Father, is the, the suffering uh, that we take, Father, does it, does it, look, like, does it look like Christ? Now, Father, is it a, a submission that we have within our hearts? Father, do we follow the example of Jesus who bore under unjust suffering patiently? Didn't deserve any of it but bore up under the sorrows, endured it with patience because he trusted in a father who judges righteously. Help us to, to trust in you, to look to you. And Father, give us great confidence as we live this life as pilgrims, aliens and strangers on this world who are far from home. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.